Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Spartan Combat. They're hosting two tournaments in June. If you're in New York, check out Brawl at the Falls going down Saturday, June 18th. And if you're in Alabama, check out Rocket City Rumble going down June 30th through July 2nd. Go to SpartanCombat.com to register. Now let's get to the episode. Well, the, the biggest thing is that wrestling shows you how to compete in the game of life better than anything that you'll ever do. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredients. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast presented by Spartan Combat. I'm your host, Ryan Warner. Our guest today is Hall of Famer and legend, Carl Adams. Carl invented the Adam Takedown Dummy. He was a two-time national champ for Iowa State, where his teammates included Dan Gable and Chris Taylor. He went on to coach at the University of Rhode Island and coached at Boston University for over 30-some years. Awesome conversation. I can't wait for you to hear this podcast. Fan of the Week goes to our friend Byrne Bush, that's B-Y-R-N-E, a listener of this podcast and someone who goes out of his way to invest in the books that our guests read. So thank you so much for sharing your journey and letting us know how much you enjoy the podcast. Without further ado, folks, let's give it up for Carl Adams. Coach Carl Adams, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you for having me. It is an honor. A true legend, an innovator, an inventor. We're going to cover it all. And uh, let's just go back to this one. Your first recruiting trip to Iowa State. How old were you? Talk us through it. Uh, My first recruiting trip, I was... I was actually 17 years old. Because I turned 18 on November 27th. So I was uh, 17 years old on my first recruiting trip to um, Iowa State. And um, it wasn't a situation where I was taking a lot of recruiting trips. Uh, Michigan State came to my home, Oklahoma State had called, and a few other schools had called and inquired about what my thinking was. And so Coach Nichols uh, called and you know, he flew me out uh, on a recruiting trip and I met my roommate to be Phil Parker, who's actually from North Chicago. 
and we both decided at that time that we, we would attend Iowa State. And so we ended up at Iowa State in the fall and we were roommates and we actually became best friends. You know, and Phil was a very good wrestler. He was a former uh, Illinois State champion uh, and he was a three-time NCAA All-American at Iowa State. And so um, the trip went well. Um, I met a few of the upper class wrestlers, uh, Jason Smith, uh, Dave Martin. I, I didn't meet Gable at that time. I think that he was probably at the Olympic uh, training village because in, that was the fall of uh, 1968. In fact, uh, he didn't show up on campus after I got there until we were in the room for about, it was either two or three weeks and he finally showed up. So was he Bobby's workout partner in 68? Was he Bobby's workout partner? Yeah, at the 68 games, or was he just um, going training? and? He, yeah, he was probably one of them because they, they actually went at it against each other in the Olympic trials. And uh, in fact, uh, those trials were at Iowa State. And uh, I think, you know, Bobby beat him out for the team, and Bobby made the team. Um. And I think that was Bobby's second Olympic team. Yeah. But Gable, I think, traveled with the team. And, and I'm guessing at this uh, because he didn't show up at Iowa State that fall until we were a few weeks into practice. And so um, the first time I saw him was when he showed up in the wrestling room. And when he showed up in the wrestling room, Guess who was the first one that he asked to wrestle? No, <laughs> you? It was me. Oh. And I think what happened was a few of the upperclassmen who were his roommates probably told him that, that I was one of the tougher freshmen in the room. And so I think Dan, he came straight over to me and he said, you want to go? And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so we went at it. Man. So, but anyway, it was it was a good recruiting trip. Um, I enjoyed being there at Iowa State. I knew that from a cultural standpoint, it was going to be different. You know, it was 98% white in the state of Iowa at the time. But I was cool with that. The only thing I was concerned about is wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it was a good trip. Um, I decided uh, actually before I left that I would probably end up at Iowa State. Uh, Coach Nichols offered me a full scholarship. And so we're off to the races. Wow. And you're, when you get there, this is the first year that true freshmen can wrestle at the Nationals. And you end up going on to become the very first freshman All-American that year. But before we even get to March of your freshman year, you're coming into a room with just Shark infested waters, nine of 11 returning all Americans, three future Olympians, six, two time champs. I mean, what was like the, uh, the culture shock getting in there those first couple months working out with, uh, obviously coach Nichols and all those guys though. Well, um, by the time I left home in 1968, 
in regards to wrestling, and this is as I look back on it, I was a full-blown man. I mean, uh, physically, I was raised tough. Um, I didn't really fear too much at all. And this is my thought as I think back. I knew I was going to make the team. <laughs> that's, just, that's just how I felt. Someone was going to give up a weight class. And I've always felt that way. Even as a seventh grader, I, I felt like I should win every single match. And when I got to college, well, high school and in college, I felt the same way. Now, I dropped some matches along the way. Um, However, uh, from ninth through 12th grade, I never lost a duel. I got bumped in a few tournaments. Uh, my senior year, I was totally undefeated. Won the New York State meet. The summer of my junior year, I was on what they call the first junior Olympic team. And we, I, I, my coach, who was a great high school coach, Coach Campo, he was taking a few guys around to these tournaments during the summer. I had no clue what was going on, but these tournaments were, were a lead up to see who would make it to the Great Lakes training camp in Chicago, which was the final tryouts to see who would make the junior Olympic team. So I won all my matches, all the tournaments, I get to the training camp and they have all the best coaches from around the country recruiting, uh, looking at some of the best wrestlers in the country at that time. And that's where they held the final trials to see who would make the junior Olympic team. So I make the team and it was probably a week or so later I'm off to Europe. In fact, my trip from Long Island to Chicago was the first time I ever flew on a plane. <laughs> so uh, we're in Europe. This is the summer of my junior year. I'm 16 years old. Wow. We're, we're uh, in Europe for two weeks. We wrestled. Do the tournament itself got canceled. We wrestled four dual meets. I wrestled in all four meets. I won all my matches. Um, so for me, it was it was a great experience. It was an incredible trip. I had been going against the best wrestlers in the country in high school. Uh, and so I, I kind of felt like I had been to the mountaintop. Now, I, I didn't know exactly what, what college wrestling held. I didn't know much about Iowa State, and I didn't know who Dan Gable was. Really? I know. I. Wow. I mean, when I got out there, I liked what I saw. Great wrestling room. Met some of the wrestlers. Met my roommate to be, and got offered a full scholarship. And so that was it. Yeah. I was going to go to college. 
and I was going to wrestle at that college. <clears throat> and that was good enough for me. And back Had in it that been Oklahoma State or some other big time school, I probably would have did the same thing. But I really lucked out. I really lucked out. It was the best choice I, I ever could have made. And is that because of the workout partners? And then obviously, you know, Coach Harold Nichols, one of the greats, did he have a big impact? Well, I was lucky because I end up on the best possible team I could end up on. During my four years, we won three national tournaments out of my four years, and we were second in the year that we didn't win. That was the greatest era ever, those four years at Iowa State. And so after I finished my eligibility, I went another year, got my degree, and then Coach Nichols hires me. I was 22 years old. And so um, that started everything. You know, I was a college coach at 22 years old. <laughs> and I'd so, heard that. You know, and I'm giggling because when I think back at this, uh, boy, was I lucky. And I'd heard that you didn't even think about going into coaching and it was more so Harold came up to you and said, you know, go to grad school and that maybe he even paid for your grad school while you were kind of learning your chops there. Is that, is that true? Yeah. I mean, he, he came up to me and said, I would like to hire you as an assistant coach. And he said, but you, you're going to have to get your master's degree. And I said, great. But I, I said, I can't afford it. And he said, I'll pay for it. And so not only did he pay for it, he paid my salary out of his own pocket. Wow. And he was at the cutting edge of entrepreneurship and wrestling at that time in terms of the camp system, his technique videos, and uh, you know, a number of things. And obviously, at 23 years old, you create the Atom Dummy. And you know it's one of the most prolific wrestling tools of all time. How much of like the entrepreneurship from that relationship rubbed off on you? And was it also a little bit of your dad? Because he was an entrepreneur as well. Yeah, um, I think quite a bit because, you know, the head coach, he becomes your idol. He's coaching, he runs his own business, and he runs some of the most successful wrestling camps in the country. And so all of this is seeping in. Now, my dad, who had a fourth grade education was very similar in a lot of ways. He started his own businesses one after another. And he was the type of guy that was just a leader, even with a fourth grade education. And as I look back on him, he was the guy that was gonna own the business and be in control of it. So when you combine, combine that with what I learned from Coach Nichols, him having a wrestling equipment business, me being in the sport of wrestling, uh, it all made sense. Now, he hired me to work at his business during the summers. 
And so I saw the manufacturing process of making singlets and you know, various t-shirts. Uh, he would buy and sell equipment from other dealers like the Universal Gym. They used to arrive in Ames, Iowa and we used to kind of put them together. Um, and so that was all very intriguing to me at the time. I didn't know that I would end up being so into that type of thing, but it all seeped in. And as I look back, it's just pouring out all over the place. <laughs> yeah. It's just pouring out all over the place because I'm still inventing things. Right. I'm still running my own company, you know, that type of thing. And talk a little bit about, you know, working for your dad growing up, because I heard you say that like wrestling was easy to you after spending 12 hour days with your dad working. Yeah, well, it was me and, and my two brothers. And we did a lot of different things to put food on the table. But one of the main things we did was landscaping. Okay. And we used to go to New York City from Long Island when they were doing the uh, revitalization process, tearing down old buildings, the old brick buildings. We used to load up dump trucks with used brick. They would knock the buildings down. The bricks would fall to the ground. They still had mortar on them, cement. We had a piece of iron, it was like an L-shaped piece, and we would clean the mortar off. And we used to have these 10-wheeler dump trucks my dad owned. We used to load whole dump trucks with used brick <laughs> and bring them back to Long Island and sell them. With the landscaping, we, we were younger when he got into that, but we used to cut 50 lawns a week, push mower. Me and my oh, two brothers. Push and mower. My, yeah. And my dad, oh, this was not a riding mower. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the landscaping business. And we used, we had customers. We used to cut their lawns either once or twice a week. Or excuse me. Once every two weeks, either once a week or once every two weeks. And we did that. We used to put in sod lawns. Um, you know, we used to put in seeded lawns. We used to rototiller the ground, rake it, clean up all the rocks and whatever. And we would uh, plant the seeds, put the lime down, put the fertilizer down. And so as I look back on that, it made me fearless. And... I became a full-blown man early. <laughs> <laughs> I left Long Island at 17 years old, a thousand miles across the country to Iowa. I never looked back. Man, and you were you were jacked back then. I saw some some pictures. I mean, you said like as a young man, just absolutely chiseled. And you know, when you think back to working with your dad you developed this work ethic. 
I mean, during that era, if you didn't feel like going to work that day or you didn't want to sleep in, was that even an option or you wouldn't even think to, to do something like that? No, well, you know, he was the type of guy, type of dad, and my mom was very similar. They were, they were good people. And we had seven kids in our family. And one of the first things that my dad did, we were a family of migrant farmers. And my dad used to bring a crew of workers from Florida, drive them to Long Island. And as a family, we started out picking potatoes <laughs> in the potato fields. That was before the landscaping. This was when my dad was younger and first getting his wings. And so we picked potatoes at seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. That my young. mom, my sisters, me and my two brothers. And so uh, work never fazed me. I grew up working. And that's why I say wrestling seemed like fun to me. Work was what I did for my dad. And so, um, and it made me fearless. It, you know, you, you were so, I want to say raw bone tough and mentally focused on surviving. Wow. And when you hit the mat, it was a game of survival. And so it, it just fit like a glove with the sport of wrestling. And what got me into wrestling was when my dad took me to a professional wrestling match at Madison Square Garden. And we saw these professional wrestlers, you know, Bobo Brazil, Haystacks Calhoun, uh, the Calypso Kid, Bruno San Martino. I still remember those names. <laughs> and so when I reached seventh grade, they had an organized wrestling program. It was a no-brainer, and I loved it. <laughs> I loved grabbing someone and throwing them down. You know, it just fit, mm -hmm. and um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And in seventh grade, I had a very good junior high school coach, Dick Green, and they all treated me like their kid. That was that was the thing, and I'm not just saying this because it was me. An example was when my junior high school coach, there was no one in the room that could actually go with me. He used to take me to college practices at CW Post College. I was in ninth grade. Wow. <laughs> so, and so, you know, uh, that type of relationship you know that your coach really cared for you. And then when I went to high school, he came to high school, he became the assistant coach at the high school I went to. So he, he kind of followed me. And uh, then I had an unbelievable high school coach, Joe Campo. Why do you call him the best coach you ever had? Because he was, because, and I think that high school coaches don't get enough credit because they build the kids. 
if those kids are good enough to go to college, the college coach, yeah, he can work them hard, get them in great shape, lift them, get them stronger. But by the time they get into a D1 program, they already have to be pretty good or else they wouldn't be there. So the high school coach and junior high school coaches have to build those kids from zero. My high school coach um, was extremely motivational. He was like a second father too. And that's the thing, the thread throughout my coaching career, I ended up with these phenomenal guys, coaches that cared so much about their athletes. And in fact, my high school coach, He's a legend on Long Island and a legend to all of the kids that wrestled for him. I wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. So, um, so like the name Joe Campbell amongst your guys, that's legendary amongst your teammates. It's legendary. In fact, it's legendary for all of Long Island and a lot of parts of the country. Wow. They know that name. Wow. Yeah, so, so – Go ahead, once, I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. Once you get out to Ames, you know, you're in this wrestling country now, and you have, you know, one of the biggest headliners ever, Dan Gable, and you have the Petersons and just all these legends. You know, when did you realize like how big the fan base was at Iowa State and just the support for wrestling back in that era? Because I heard dual meets were like sellouts sometimes. Yeah. Um we used to wrestle um I'm trying to think of the name of the first gym that we wrestled in. Um, it's been so long. Not- but anyway, we had sellout crowds. When we went to other schools, they had sellout crowds. And it was great. You know, um, we were stars. <laughs> you know, and it, and it wasn't anything that, that you go out there thinking about. I'm a star. But those people love their wrestlers and they followed you, you know, wherever you went mm-hmm. and they paid attention to what was happening with the program. And if you think about it, when you have Dan Gables, who was the biggest name in wrestling, Chris Taylor, and back then, a guy like Jason Smith, who's a teammate, same year as Gable. He was a two-time national champ in third one year and a college world champion. Um, You had Dave Martin, who was a runner-up and a national champion. You had Chuck Jean, who was a two-time national champ. It was just one after the other. And I think all Coach Nichols had to do for the most part, because he was a dynamite recruiter, was put us all in a room together. And I feel like those guys that started, we were all cut from the same mold. We we're going to make the team and don't get in my way. <laughs> Man. You know, because my freshman year, there were, there were six guys at my weight that I had to actually beat out. Six? That's definitely... The final one that I had to beat out was supposed to be the heir apparent for that spot, the 152-pound weight, Dave Bach. Mm. 
And so he came up one side, I came up the other side, we met. I beat him seven to one. He never challenged again. Dang. <laughs> that was when I was a freshman. And then you, you know, you place as a freshman and then 1970 NCAAs rolls around. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people remember that year because of the Gable Owings loss. But for you, yeah. you had, I got to imagine, a career defining loss of your own right, not yeah. getting to the podium and placing. What, if, if, as you look back, you know, over you know, 50 years of coaching, what, how do you evaluate that 70 nationals and uh, how, how much did those weight classes changing impact things? Well, you know, to be honest, during the season, that was one of my better years. I was 17-0-1. Had you wrestled Mike Grant during that year? I wrestled Mike Grant in a duel. That was my tie. Got it. I wrestled Mike Grant in the finals of the Big Eight, and I beat him. He was the number one seed at the NCAA tournament and defending national champ. Bob Ferraro, who was second at the NCAA tournament that year, I beat him too. And what happened was if I had wrestled three matches. I think I had won all three. I think it might have been the quarters, if I remember correctly. And I was head by a point. And I was, I tried to stall out with nine seconds to go. And I got taken down. Hmm. So I was pissed. I, I not only should have placed, but I should have won it that year. <laughs> I mean, the guys that were first and second, I beat both of them. And Mike Grant, he was a defending champ. I beat him in the finals of the Big Eight, which was two weeks away from the NCAA tournament. And Bob Ferraro, who was wrestling for Indiana, I beat him in a duel. And that doesn't mean anything. Because when you get to the NCAA tournament, all bets are off. Anything could happen. And, but for me, it was, a, it was a great, great, great lesson. Don't try to protect the league. Yeah. With nine seconds to go. Well, and back then, you know, you had to, the guy had to advance to wrestle back. And so the guy who beats right. you got teched by Ferraro, which is crazy. And yeah. And then you're out basically, right? That's it. I'm out. Jeez. Crazy. Yeah, I, I, I'm out. And, and I think one of, one of the big things about that year, the weight class my freshman year was 152. I wrestled 157 my senior year in high school. Ooh. And so my <laughs> sophomore year, the weight class went from 152 to 150. I was huge. And weight cutting hurt. And when you do it over the length of a whole season, and, and I know leading up to the national tournament, I, I just wasn't on cue with the way I managed it. And I won my first three matches. And I noticed after that match I lost, I was really, really tired. Really tired. And I, I shouldn't have been tired. <laughs> but, but, you know, sometimes the way you manage your weight cutting catches up to you. 
And I think that's what, but, and, and that's not an excuse. Right. I got beat because I was trying to stall with nine seconds to go. That's why I got beat. But I think back then, though, when you're talking weight cutting, it's serious, a serious amount of weight versus even what guys are going through now. It was like ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was up around 177 after my senior season in high school. Oh, and you had to go to 150 your sophomore year in college. 150. And the thing is, um, wow. I cut my weight. I didn't complain about it, but that was hard. And when you're maturing physically and your body is still growing um, and you're cutting below what you were the year before, it, it, it caught up to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, as I, because I went to 158 my junior year. Okay. I won. My senior year, I wrestled 167 all year. And the coach and I, we fought about that. He wanted me to cut to 158 again. And Keith Abens, who was at 167, you know, he wanted him at 67 and me at 158. And 158 was doable, but I was sick and tired of cutting weight. And so he made he made me try, try out with Pete Davis. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I turned around, we were having a tryout. And so I beat him every time. And the last time I beat him so bad, he says, Carl, he said, the spot is yours. So then it was near the end of the season. And I was in really good shape. And my weight was down around 64, 65. And Keith and I were in the locker room or going to shower or something. And I said, Keith, you wanna, you wanna trade weights? And he said, yeah. So we traded, I went back to 58, he went to 67. Keith was huge. Keith took a second in the NCAA tournament at 67. You know, I won again at 58 against uh, Stan Desick, yeah. who was also a defending national champ. And a, uh, I love this about it, a Division II champ. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's pretty yeah. pretty unique to see that. Um, bef before we get to that match, what was like the average practice like back then at Iowa State? Oh, they're about two hours. And to be honest, they didn't do very much teaching. It was a free fall. You went in there, you just went to war. And there was so many good wrestlers in the room. You knew you had to go to war every day. And for me, it was fun because I enjoyed the hell out of wrestling. <laughs> I had no, a lot of people don't like going to practice. I love going to practice. I love scrapping with guys, you know, that type thing. So, you know, but it was a free fall. And it was almost like you had a room full of coaches. Because these guys were good, two and three time state champions, the Dan Gables, you know, national champions, Chuck Gene, Jason Smith. They were tough as hell. Mm -hmm. they, and if you went with them, 
you knew that you can go with anyone else in the country because you did it every single day. And it was great to measure yourself by the guys in your own room. And so uh, Gable kept all of us level-headed. And so who was Iowa State's big rival back then? Was it OU or Okie State? Okie State and OU. Yeah, I didn't In know. In fact, who- my uh, freshman year, we were supposed to walk away with the national tournament. We took a third in the Big Eight. Oh. And then when we got to the national tournament, we broke the NCAA scoring record. That was 1969, my freshman year. <laughs> we wow. took a third in the Big Eight. That's how tough that conference was. Insane. And that's just Hall of Famer row there if you look at some of those lineups. And, you know, you obviously you two national champs. Uh, you beat Stan Desick in the finals, the defending champ your senior year. And you said that's like one of the highlights of your career. When did the concept for the Adam Dummy come into play? Well, I, I actually got my degree in 1973. You know, I was still wrestling, working on my master's degree. And it actually came to me in a dream, to be honest. I mean, I was so into technique and takedowns. And the entrepreneurial part of me saw this thing that was human-like, saw this thing that you can do repetitions on nonstop if you didn't have a partner. And my only thought was, what a way to get better, to have something that you can do hundreds of technique on and refine those skills and just be by yourself doing it and not have to have a partner, but you still can make great gains because of the precision that might come out of it. Mm -hmm. And so my dream was that it had to be human-like. It had to react like a human. And I got up that night, scribbled on a piece of paper, got up the next morning, I looked at it, and the rest is history. <laughs> and, and I'm going to be honest with you. I still have no idea of how that actually happened. I didn't have a business degree. I was broke. I wasn't an engineer. All I had was an idea and drive to get it done. And so... How did, how did you... All right, so you have this dream you write it down and you start acting on it how did you build like the first prototype well i drove to new york now i have two brothers that also wrestled my older brother eddie real bright guy and he was majored in landscape architect at farmingdale junior college in fact he was a junior college national champion so so was my younger brother ron wow and I got together with Ed, told him what I wanted to do. And he helped draw the thing, you know, that we were going to. The blueprint. Build. If, if you look at the patent, we got the patent, I think, within a nine-month period. 
It's the same drawing that he drew. Wow. And so what happened was he came back to Iowa with me. And then we started really working on it. We were both broke. And so I brought the idea to Coach Nichols, the drawing. He said, go ahead, I'll finance it. So he paid for the first prototype. Wow. He didn't even ask any questions about it. He just said, go ahead, I'll pay for it. And so we went to work on it. I mean, we there's if you look at that thing, there's a lot to it. Moles, the spring system, legs, arms, the head springs inside of a metal casing. It bends at the waist. It goes in all directions. Um, so 23, 24 years old, I look back at it and I say, I don't know how that happened. And I still don't. <laughs> how many iterations did you have to go through from the first time you got a physical product in the mail from your distributor to when you were selling it? We made a couple modifications as far as the spring system that supported it. Um, we had shock absorbers in the back. And then we went to a big spring. And then you had to get the molds made for the casings that held the spring that allowed it to move in any, any directions. Um, and then the covering, we had to make sure it looked good. You know, the leggings with a singlet-like uniform. Um, we just stayed after it, you know, and it's just like wrestling. You just stick with it mm -hmm. and stick with it and have the attitude that we're going to keep making it better. And that's what we did. And it's still on the market today. The only problem with it today is that it can't compete with our newest products. <laughs> the company's been sold twice. Oh, really? So yeah. there's so, someone's out there still making the original and you're original. making the snap and shoot. That, that company's been sold twice. I sold it to my partner after I got to Boston University because I just didn't have the time. And then my partner sold it to a guy out in Michigan. And so 23 years ago, I designed a snap and shoot. And we kept improving it. We kept modifying it. And now it's, I mean, we doubled sales the past two years. Yeah. Um, and now we have another one coming out. The one that you see now has a thin torso. We made one with a chest on it. So that takes the whole thing to a whole new level. And I love that your son is making one for football as well, or has made yes. one for football. Yeah. He yeah. was a yeah. lineman at NC state and then went on to play professionally for two years and back coaching at yeah. NC state. Yeah. So it's cool to see it carry over. Yeah. 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 It's, it, it, it's nice because he's, he played football and um, the one for football is similar to the takedown defender, which has been on the market for about 17 years. 
but we made some modifications mm-hmm. and we're still making modifications and it could be used for football. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool. I mean, I was in high school from 03 through 07 and sure enough, we had an Adam dummy in our room and I loved hitting like blast doubles on that thing, low singles and yeah. just the sound of the snap of the spring when you'd hit one, it sounded so good. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man, it was just awesome. I and then like you snap a guy down, he comes up, boom, you hit that double, and you just mm-hmm. felt like you were really like laying into somebody. Yeah, it's it's funny because a lot of guys like the noise of those springs hitting click clack clack. You know, uh, I didn't like it so much, and so the snap and shoot is more quiet. I don't know if that's good or bad because I've heard people say the same thing that you're saying. It was just like uh, I I grew up loving obviously loving wrestling but the you really it was before flow and all that and so a lot of it was just i loved watching like professional boxing and like the rocky movies and they had all yeah. this stuff they could do on their own and yeah. you know you couldn't obviously afford an adam dummy in your house back right. then at least we couldn't but i don't think most people could but the in the wrestling room though you could go and just yeah hit low singles hit doubles yeah. on that yeah. thing forever and it was yeah. awesome and yeah it was well, in the, the concept s- is, is, is dynamite for wrestling. Oh. And uh, you, you, you can't get around the fact that when you can do multiple reps, you're going to get better. Because mm-hmm. it comes back to that same position every time. And you're really refining the speed and technique. Yeah. And the throwing dummy is great, but it's limited to you can't really do leg attacks on it. Because yeah. it, it's mm-hmm. just, you know, you have to have, have someone hold it up or something. But yeah, yeah, so that was in your, that was in your 20s in the mid 70s. And yeah. it just, uh, did it take off then or did it take time for it to take off? Well, the first year, I think we sold 25. Because we we're still making little modifications. Then after that, it took off. I mean, there's had to be that. I mean, thousands of those things made every wrestling room in the country's probably had one at some point in time. I would say there's, there's thousands of them out there now. I think it's probably selling a lot less now because it costs twice as much as the snap and shoot. Right. <laughs> and COVID probably had to be good for you guys at the snap and shoot, like you said. I mean, COVID happened. People wanted to uh, to get some some home gyms going. Our, our, our sales doubled. Uh, and it's still going like crazy. And I ended up working uh, for the past two years. I've been working seven days a week. I have help. Now, I enjoy it. I, I, I look forward to getting up every morning. I have all of, we have all of our own tools. We manufacture everyone from scratch. And we even deliver them to FedEx for the shipping. Mm-hmm. Well, you you hear it here, folks. the The OG founder of the Adam. If you want the uh, the goods, the latest, it's the Snap and Shoot, and we'll link to all that in the show notes, Coach Adams, to make sure people know where they can find it. But it's uh, it it, it looks similar, but like you said, it's it's leaned out, it's more efficient, and I'm sure it's uh, you know, it's spreading like crazy. So, the the Adam and you know the takedown system was one part of your entrepreneurship. But you know the, the the camps and the books. I want to talk about that. But that was kind of like out of necessity because you're a, you're an assistant at Iowa State. You become the head coach at Rhode Island, and ultimately they drop the program. You go to 
to Boston and you had to find kind of extra, as I call them side hustles, right? You had to do some camps, you had to do yeah. books and all this. So um, that was all kind of out of necessity. What was like the state of wrestling at university of Rhode Island when you got there? Well, the fix was already in by the time I got there. And what do you mean? They knew they were going to drop the program. And I'll give you an example. When I got there, okay, we won the conference. We had an All-American, which was a rarity at, at Rhode Island. They had won Scott Pacino before that. Um, I was rookie college coach of the year. Okay. They dropped it that same year. <laughs> so we, we finished out the season, the, the second season. Boston University called me up. I went up, met the athletic director, and he said, you got the job if you want it. They had just fired the coach from Boston University, the wrestling coach. So I'm um, 35, 40 miles up the road, and I got a new job. In fact, I was getting paid from both schools at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was New England. It was pretty much the same level. And then at Boston, we were able to combine what a few of my kids from Rhode Island that transferred what, with uh, what Boston had of their best kids. So we started out on a good foot. We won the conference for five years in a row. And then we were runner-ups a couple, three years, I think. And then we won it five more years in a row uh, when we were in Boston. Um, but it was great because it was New England. And the way I look at coaching, the coach that takes kids that aren't supposed to be that good and brings them to a certain level, I think it takes a lot more than recruiting the very best kid in the country and then he does what he's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, uh, it was 2012, I think it was, you know, we wrestled Iowa State at BU. We're not even supposed to be on the same mat. We can fit three of our wrestling rooms into theirs. Their head coach is an Olympic champ, two-time world champ. Their assistant coaches are national champions. They come to Boston University. We beat them 21 to 16. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, we beat them 21 to 16. This oh, is Iowa my. State. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so, to me, that's much more rewarding than going someplace, say, Big Ten, Big 12, where all the best kids in the country flock. Now, those coaches work hard. But if you don't get the job done, it's going to end up being like Iowa State was a few years back where they were bottom of the barrel almost. Mm -hmm. They were down to like 50th in the country. Mm -hmm. They've come back up. But yeah. you have the work to stay up. But you also attract the best kids in the country year in and year out. Whereas at a school like BU where the academics are so tough limited budgets, 
It took me 23 years before I had a full-time assistant coach. 23? 23 years before I had a full-time assistant coach. So you were doing it yourself or you just had volunteers? Volunteers, you know, myself pretty much, you know, that type thing. Yeah. Oh, but it was cool. You know, I, 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 like I said, I, I don't mind working. I love coaching. Um, I thought I was pretty good at it uh, from a technical standpoint and just being able to get along with the kids on the team and just getting along with wrestlers in general. Mm -hmm. It was a good fix for me. When you have systematized your philosophy and you've written several books on it and you know, a ton of instructional DVDs, but one of the uh, concepts you have are, are the pillars of winning, the seven pillars of winning. And I'm just curious, what are like one or two of those in your perspective? Oh, you're talking about goal setting. Yeah. Uh, taking advantage of time. Um, finish what you start. Um, you know, concepts. I don't have them all in front of me. I don't. Right. Like I spoke at a banquet just just yesterday. <laughs> and um, sometimes, you know, but once you get away from it, mm -hmm. from coaching, you don't keep them all at the tip of your tongue. But but those are those are some of them. Um, and I think another way to, to look at it is like, what were some of your principles as a coach, like your guiding principles that helped you create? you know, kind of consistent, cohesive teams year in, year out? Well, the thing is, I, I, I think you have to have a philosophy as far as the technical aspect, okay, the mental aspect, and the physical aspect. And from, from the mental aspect, I think it's critical to try to get your wrestlers to understand how powerful the mind is and what you can accomplish when you set your mind to getting something done. And then there's the process. You got to set goals. But in that process, a goal doesn't mean anything unless you're totally committed to that goal. And some wrestlers, and you, you've probably seen them, they're committed one day, the next day, not so much. They're committed one week. The next week, not so much. What they have to realize is that it's a lot easier to be going in the same direction all the time. It's easier rather than going back and forth. If you come to practice and you don't feel that good, you feel like you may want to take a day off, you fight through it anyway. And that's what total commitment is. And um, you know, the mental, the physical is the conditioning part. And mm -hmm. most of what I know there, I got from being on the same team with Gable. And that is how a wrestler who is, has great conditioning is going to be in a good place all the time because a lot of times you're a well-conditioned competitor you don't feel a hurt as much as a guy that's going to get tired and fatigue. And that if you're in great shape, you can wrestle with a great sense of freedom. You could just let it fly and you can let it fly the whole time. Mm -hmm. 
And if you have good technical skills on top of that, and you're in a good place mentally, then you got all three areas working for you. So again, you know, focus is the mental, the physical, and the technical. And at the end of the season, all of those three areas should be at a peak. You should be at your best. And great champions, they finish a lot stronger than they started. A lot of times you see athletes, whether it be in track, wrestling or whatever, they're just kind of limping through the latter part of the season, just trying to get through the end. If you look at great champions, they sprint through the end. Mm -hmm. They sprint through the finish. They're not, they know that they just can't limp across the finish line. They have to sprint across the finish line. And those are the guys that win your national championships. And obviously, you have to have paid the price before that happens, meaning that the preparation has to be there. Yeah. And so in a have... small nutshell, that's kind of the way I look at being really good in this sport. Um, I like how it's the, the mental con- part is the most important. Yeah, the, the, the confluence of the three things is not, I like that about it. And that it kind of brings it all together. Um, because I think there's been times in wrestling where we've been too focused on the physical conditioning and just the kind of the pounding and the grinding of it. And maybe not as much, uh, maybe the other two, but uh, we, you know, we're in a you know, huge renaissance of wrestling now over the past 15 years. And I think there's been a lot of change. I wanted mm-hmm. to, before we sign off, I wanted to ask you about your trip to the world championships in 1975 mm-hmm. Minsk and the old Soviet union. Just what were your reflections on going to the Soviet union during that time? Well, it was really different, uh, primitive in comparison to what we have in this country. Great experience because what you realize is that people are the same everywhere. We were a group of wrestlers wearing the the USA wrestling shirts and gear the Russian people wanted to come up and talk to you, meet to meet you, and just find out about America. Just like a, a kid in a candy shop. Mm-hmm. They want to go through and look at all the pieces of candy and see which piece tastes the best, you know, that type of thing. But it was it was a great experience in that you're in a different country, communist. And it was the Soviet Union who you had heard all of these things about. And so you actually got to witness it and see them in their element because they were the best wrestlers in the world at that time. And you got to see how their fans supported them, um, enjoyed what they had as a country in the sport of wrestling. And you got to witness that with a group of great American wrestlers uh, during that time, you know? Yeah. And you, man, you think about, 
I was looking at the brackets from that world championships. It was a, there was a lot of parody back then. You know, Japan had some great wrestlers. The Soviet Union had some great wrestlers. Like there was a lot of countries that were in the mix going for it. Yeah. I mean, um, in my weight class, you know, Date, he was ended up being the Olympic champion in 76. Mm-hmm. He was the best wrestler I had ever faced by far. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It taught me that I probably should have lifted along the way. I never lifted weights. What? I never lifted weights. So like that physique was all just natural and just like just like natural push-ups and working out and wrestling a lot of it. That's called working on the brick pile. Yeah. <laughs> Landscaping and all of that lifting. Mm-hmm. Eight hours a day, 12 hours a day. I never focused on lifting, lifting weights. There were times, yeah, you went in the room and you, but I never weight trained. Mm-hmm. Man. And so, so that's, that's gotta be, I mean, you think back to one of the, one of the events in wrestling that kind of took you over the world, the junior Olympics, and then yeah, 75. And I know you went to the Pan Ams and different events like that, but yeah, I mean, to go to the world championships back then when the Soviet union was still intact, when, you know, a, a year before the Olympics is always an exciting year, too. So, I mean, man, just uh, it had to be a big moment. Yeah. Uh, and then and now in 75. To make the world team. That weight class was unbelievable. We had Wade Chalice. Stan Desick, mm-hmm. Lee Kemp. They were all in that weight. No. Wade Chalice. He won the Olympic trials in 76. I got injured uh, in my, I think, fourth match, a shoulder injury. Mm-hmm. But I beat Shallis every time I wrestled him five times. <laughs> wow. And in the 75 National Freestyle Tournament, I wrestled him and Stan Desert within the same hour. And I Man. beat both of them. You know, I won the national freestyles that year. Then I got to the 75 world trials and there were a bunch of good guys. It was desert. It was Chalice. It was uh, Joe Wells. Uh, you name it. I was the number one seed. So Chalice actually beat desert in the round robin. And so it was Chalice and myself to see who made the team. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, Went two out of three against Shallis, and I won both matches and made the team. And then whoever made the team was on the Pan Am team. So it actually worked out pretty good um, because you got to be on two world teams. I had wrestled in the World Cup before as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I was glad that happened because someone like Shallis, he never made a world team. As good as he is. That's crazy. And that happens with a lot of guys who may be great. But let me tell you something. That world team is hard to make. If you look at what's going on now at the trials and you look at the talent. And what I found was that a lot of things have to be going in a good direction. Like I'm going to give you an example, and this is not to pat myself on the back or anything. In 1975, I was the best I had ever been. 
had the trials been in 1975, I would have been, I would have been an Olympian. Mm -hmm. But it didn't work out that way. And what happens is you have these four-year cycles. And sometimes everything lands just right. You could be a little bit off other years. And everybody else is going gangbusters. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of luck. And then there's just the true greatness of Jordan Burroughs now. And Snyder, they're unbelievable. But in a lot of these other weight classes, it's nip and tuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's now just it, the way it is. And, uh, you know, the trials tournament was last week in final X is coming up. There's so many great guys right now. And I was just talking to my previous podcast about this after 24, 2024, really curious to see how the, the team kind of re-identifies itself because a lot of those guys, Gilman, JB, Dake, David Taylor, Jaden Cox, they're probably done after 2024. Maybe not. I hope not. But well, if they are, you know. Yeah, well, Jaden uh, is still young. He's fairly young. Yeah. Snyder is still, you know, he's the way he's built and stuff like that. He can go for, he can probably go two more cycles. Burrell's going to be, what, 33, 34? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, they're getting paid now. Back in the day, we weren't getting paid. <laughs> we, you know, we didn't have these training centers and the clubs that were actually paying us a salary, 50, 60. Some of those guys are probably getting 75, $100,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Now you can afford to train all day long <laughs> and all year long. And what's happening now is that the American wrestlers are getting better and better because of the way it's structured now. They're getting paid. They have these Olympic training centers all over the country. They have paid coaches coaching those guys. And all they got to think about is being great and training. Right. Which is great. The Soviets have had it that way for a long time. Definitely. Yeah. A lot of support. That been, I, you know, I've heard Lee Kemp talk about like after he won the world championships, he returned home. No one in the USA knew anything about it. USA wrestling, like there wasn't even any support for it. It was like nothing had happened. And you compare it to now, these guys are making some good money and rightfully so. And then, you know, there, there's just a whole networking community around it. Um, yeah. Pretty, pretty awesome to see, you know, last, last question for you coaches, you know, the name of this podcast is wrestling changed my life. So I just want to ask you in what ways do you think wrestling is, is a change agent for young people getting involved through the sport? Well, the, the biggest thing is that wrestling shows you how to compete in the game of life better than anything that you'll ever do. Um, These inventions, part of that was work ethic. Most of it was what I learned 
from my participation in the sport of wrestling. The books I've written, a lot of people don't know it, probably because they haven't written books, but you have to have a lot of focus and you have the will, you have to have the will to finish what you start. The last book I wrote in 2014, because wrestling gave me such a better understanding of taking advantage of time, I sat and wrote for 30 days straight. I had written over 200 pages. To go in with that kind of focus, that's what wrestling does. Mm -hmm. Because it's easy to complain and say I'm too tired. No, because wrestling shows you how not to be tired and how you have to keep competing and keep moving forward. So I think that's a great, great, great benefit of the sport. And at this banquet that I spoke at yesterday, I told those kids that they'll get more out of their participation in the sport of wrestling than any other thing that they'll do in life. And I really believe that. Love it. As do I. And I know a lot of people listening and have someone like you who has had so many different perspectives on the sport throughout your life. And, you know, just going through two programs that dropped wrestling and you're still at it writing. And I, I know you wrote that book right after the BU situation. You had yeah. all that time. So, man, it is just it's been an honor to have you on here. I'm so grateful you've been able to take the time with us. So thank you so much, Coach. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, I, I wish you luck and, and you're very good at what you do. Thank you so much for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life. This episode was presented by Spartan Combat. They're running a special and custom team apparel at SpartanCombat.com. To watch the video component of this interview, go to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube page, Wrestling Changed My Life. We'll see you next time.